Today's scripture is from Romans 8, 1 through 17. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Trinity. Good morning, good morning. Yay! Yay! Good morning. Um, It's good to be with all of you. If you were here with us last week, we kind of said last week's sermon was kind of like struggling on a wrestling mat. Um, Today, I'm going to say, is a little more like trying to pack your whole closet into a suitcase, meaning (laughs) there's just so much stuff. In so many of these passages, we easily could spend a lot of time chewing on a lot of nice pieces, but I am going to try to rather ambitiously cover a lot of ground. We're going to try to pack a lot in. There are just lots of pieces. The three main points are deceptive because there are like lots of sub-pieces under each of those headings. And yet I hope at the end, I hope you will have a clear response for how you want Romans 8 to impact your life today. Well, we're going to recognize that uh, this starts back in Romans 7. Paul was talking about how we are to live in the new way of the Spirit, not the old way of the law. But then Paul paused to answer this question, is the law sin? He spent the rest of the chapter addressing that. But now we come back to the issue of living in the Spirit. Romans 8. 
want to recognize that living in the Spirit is just another piece of this gospel story. We've been talking about there are two domains, two kingdoms, two realities, two realms, and the gospel is a story of how we've been transferred from one to the other. And I want to try to remind us and um, show us this in a little chart here. We were once dead to sin, now we are alive to God. We were once slaves of sin, now we are slaves of righteousness. We were once dead to the law, now we're married to Jesus. We were under the law, now we're under grace. We were in the flesh, now we are in the spirit. Paul addressed all these things. And if, you, if you've been following, you notice these are not separate topics. These are all just different ways of describing the old versus the new to help us appreciate this gospel deliverance, rescue, transfer. And that means that life in the spirit is one aspect of life in the new kingdom, meaning it is not an optional thing. It is not an additional mode for some Christians. It's not for some denominations. It's not for super spiritual individuals. It is part of what it means to be a Christian. Verse 9 explicitly said, if you don't have the Spirit, you're not a Christian. You don't belong to Christ. All Christians have the Spirit and live in the Spirit. Given this graph here, the, we said earlier, you can't just take one piece and, and throw out the rest. It's like, you can't just say, well, I, I like being legally married, but I want to live the lifestyle of singlehood. Like, you, it doesn't work that way. It all is kind of packaged together. This is one reality with its various aspects, which is why Paul so clearly and extendedly has been trying to explain Grace does not give permission to sin because grace means we are living in this new kingdom. Well, most of our passage is descriptive, not prescriptive. It is the phrase we've been using. It's indicative, not imperative. Paul is explaining and contrasting life in the spirit versus life in the flesh. And I just want to review this for us, okay, think these charts, old realm, new realm, life in the flesh, life in the spirit. Paul is saying life in the flesh does not fulfill the law, but life in the spirit does fulfill the law. Life in the flesh, mind is set on fleshly things that lead to death, but in the spirit, our mind is set on spiritual things leading to life and peace. The mind set on flesh is hostile to God, unsubmitted to God's law, cannot please God. And by implication, the mind set on the spirit loves God, is submitted to God's law, and does please God. Those in the flesh do not belong to Christ. Those in the spirit, by implication, do belong to Christ because the spirit is life because of righteousness. The spirit gives life to our mortal bodies, by implication. In the flesh, our mortal bodies will not have life. In the flesh, we will die. In the spirit, we will live. We are sons of God. We do not have this spirit of slavery producing fear. We have the spirit of adoption that cries out, Abba, Father, bearing witness that we are his children, that we are heirs with Christ, and that with Christ, we suffer 
and we are glorified. The focus, again, is this new life, this whole package, this new kingdom, this new reality. And for us today, Paul is not so much telling us what to do. He is telling us what the Spirit does for you. What the Spirit produces in you as we live in the new kingdom. Our tradition doesn't always put a lot of emphasis on the Spirit, but I hope as we study our passage today, we would better understand, appreciate, and benefit from the Spirit's ministry to us. So what does the Spirit do? How does the Spirit help us? What does it produce? I'm going to highlight, what did I say? Six things. Packing the suitcase here. Number one, it fulfills the law. Paul points out that the law is fulfilled in two ways. He said, Christ condemned sin and was our sin offering. He paid the penalty of our sin and declared us justified. We understand that. That's the doctrine of justification. But there is another layer that we fulfill the law, and that is we fulfill the law by the Spirit. It's not just that we are declared righteous. We actually become righteous. What we were unable to do by the law, we now do by the Spirit. We actually become law-fulfilling believers. As we've seen, grace does not mean that we can live as we please. It does not lead to lawlessness. It means we fulfill the law by the Spirit. Second, it reorients our mind. I don't know if you noticed as we were reading this passage how Paul repeats this phrase in just a few short verses, uh, verses 5 to 7. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. So what's he talking about? (laughs) Right? There is an emphasis here that life in the Spirit is the Spirit setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, I think it's more than just our thought life, but suffice it to say, it certainly includes our thought life. So let me ask you, what's your thought life like? What do you think about? What's on your mind? Where does your mind drift? Hopefully not during a sermon, but, you know, when you're driving or something else. How much does your mind think about fear, image, comparison, material possessions or comfort? How much of your mind is on work, kids, sports, shopping, golf, lunch, coffee? How much of your mind is kind of like everybody else's mind, whereas Romans 8 is saying... The mind of someone with the Spirit is notably different from the mind of someone who does not have the Spirit. That the Spirit focuses our minds on the things of God. It leads to conviction of sin. He causes us to taste God's goodness. He causes us to turn to God, to cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit changes how we think what our minds are set on. Number three, the Spirit reorients our soul. Verses seven and eight. For the mind that is set 
on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I think verses 7 and 8 point out that mindset, what the mind is set on, is not just cognitive. Because in this verse, he's saying, the mind that is set is hostile to God, doesn't submit to God's law, cannot please God. It's not just our thoughts. I'm going to say it points to a posture, an orientation. Are we hostile to God or are we, are we warm and friendly with God? Are we submitted to God's law or are we rebellious and we just want to live as we please? Right? What is our, this mind that is set, I think, points to a broader inner orientation toward God that pleases God. And how does the Spirit do that? What is the Spirit's ministry of this? Before we said, if you remember way back in Romans 6, that slavery is being controlled by the desires of our heart. We are enslaved to the desires of our heart. And like discovering the beauty of fresh ground pour-over coffee, the Christian has discovered something beautiful, something delicious, something better. That's what the Spirit does. It awakens our taste buds to taste something better. Wow. Oof. Delicious. Or another way to put it is in Ephesians 3, Paul prays that the Ephesians would be strengthened by the Spirit to comprehend the breadth and the depth and the height of God's incomprehensible love. He's saying there is a love so transcendent that your little puny brain will never understand it, but I'm going to pray that the Spirit empowers you to actually experience what would otherwise be so transcendent. God says he loves you, and the Spirit takes that and melts your heart. It awakens your taste bud. It brings it into a reality that you can now access. So that now, instead of running away from God, we run toward God. Our souls are reoriented toward God. Number four, what does the Spirit produce? It produces life. There are numerous verses that reference this. These will suffice, verse 6. To set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Notice verse 11. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Just pause. There are so many pieces here, but just pause for a moment. He's saying, the spirit that rose Jesus from the dead Easter morning is the spirit in you that will rise you from the dead. That's what's in you. That we have the spirit, the resurrection spirit that has conquered death, cannot die, that gives life eternal. We have the deposit of a death defying, resurrection-giving, immortality-transforming spirit in us. What does that even mean? 
whoa. And that resurrection life isn't just something we're waiting for. Paul is pointing out that life we live today, it has already begun. This is life in the new kingdom. If you remember back in Romans 6, we talked about how being a slave of sin produces misery and shame and death. Being a slave of righteousness leads to more righteousness and holiness and life eternal. Again, the picture isn't, oh, at the end of the journey, there's heaven you can go to. No, the picture is living in the spirit produces more and more and more life. Living in the flesh produces misery and shame and death. Meaning life in the spirit means we become more and more alive. True, abundant life culminating in our bodily and glorious resurrection. Spirit produces life. Number five, the Spirit produces conformity to God's will through intercession. We're going to cheat a little bit and go a little beyond our passage because a few verses later in Romans 8. Well, let's read verses 26 and 27. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, there's a line in there. It's saying, the Spirit prays for you. Just pause. How's that? Like the third person of the Trinity is your prayer partner? <laughs> like, the Spirit intercedes for you. In fact, he groans. He's not just saying, oh, yeah, no, no, no. No, he is groaning for you. But it's a little more specific. It's saying, we don't always know what we should pray for. We don't always know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit does know. The Spirit prays for us according to God's will. He knows God's will and he prays it for us. That's his intercession. That's his groaning. Now, the interesting thing is just a couple of verses later, Romans 8, uh, 20, uh, verse 29, God's will becomes a little more clear. His purpose is that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. That means, I think, the Holy Spirit is praying, groaning God's will for you, which ultimately means that you become like Jesus. Connecting the dots, I think the Spirit is groaning. Oh, help him be more like Jesus. Oh, groan, groan, groan. Help her be more like Jesus. Like Jesus, like Jesus, like Jesus. Help him be more like Jesus. Number six. The Spirit gives us the assurance of adoption. We are God's children. It's not that the Spirit secures our adoption. It's that the Spirit helps us believe it. Help us be assured of it. Help us to feel God is our Father. 
and that we are his beloved children. So that we no longer live in fear, we live in confidence and security and assurance. So now it's just in, our, it's in us to cry out, Abba, Abba, in Korean, Appa, you know, Daddy, Daddy. That, that cry, Abba, I think represents two things, meaningful things for us. One, it is a term of intimacy. Daddy, Papa. Now make no mistake, God is Lord Almighty, holy, holy, holy. Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Nisi, but the spirit in us causes us to say, Daddy? <laughs> Daddy? It convinces us to have the confidence, comfort, and intimacy that the word that seems appropriate is Daddy. It's also a cry for help. This prayer, Abba, Father, was uttered by Jesus. There's only one recorded instance. It was at Gethsemane. Abba, Father, if it is possible, take this cup away from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. It was a cry for help. I think for those of us with kids, family day, all these little guys around, uh, we experience this every day, perhaps every hour. <laughs> Anytime our kids are scared or hungry or want anything, Daddy, Mommy. Uh, no one had to teach them to do that, by the way, right? Somehow they just know that when they're in need, when they're hungry, when they're tired, when they, Daddy, Mommy, because they believe Daddy and Mommy love them. They believe Daddy and Mommy are big and strong. Daddy and Mommy are going to help. Who are you going to call? Who are you going to call? Daddy, <laughs> mommy, they're going to help me. Likewise for the Christian. When we are anxious and stressed and troubled and overwhelmed, our instinct is to cry out to the one who we believe loves us, who we believe is big and strong, who we believe will help us. Our instinct in the time of trouble is to say, Daddy, Daddy, oh, Daddy, please. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. God is no longer to us a distant God. He is not merely a God in whom we believe intellectually, theologically, theoretically, doctrinally only. All this is possible to one who is not a child of God at all. Our worship and praying are spontaneous. It's a spontaneity of the child who sees the father. And not only spontaneity, but confidence. A little child has confidence. He doesn't analyze it. He knows. Abba. He says, Father. Grown-ups may stand back at a distance and uh, being very formal with like some great person. But the little child comes running in, rushes right in, holds on to the father's legs. He has a right no one else has. It's instinctive. We cry, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit persuades us so that there is spontaneity. There is confidence. The angels are bowing, the seraphim are flying around, and we run right in and hold his legs and say, Daddy, 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 Daddy. 
because the Spirit has convinced us. That's who he is to us. One more aspect about our adoption. Some of you might have noticed that it says that we receive the adopt, spirit of adoption as sons. And in our uh, gender equality world, maybe you know, like we prefer something like, you know, spirit of adoption as children. You know, something a little more gender neutral. Why just talk about the boys? Um, but that would lose something important. In the ancient Roman world, sometimes these wealthy families didn't have sons. They didn't have heirs. So they, it wasn't uncommon to adopt a son who would then guarantee the succession of the family name and the family fortune. Seeing being adopted as son isn't about this only being for men. Being adopted as sons means that all Christian men and women are heirs, heirs of an inheritance, which is exactly what Paul then says, that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We have an inheritance. Paul is describing, going back to these charts, this whole new world, this new life. He is trying to enlarge our view, reframe our expectations, embolden our faith. This is what Christ has done for you. And today, this is what the Spirit does for you. Last April, um, I shared a sermon on Jesus' prayer, and I gave an illustration about Extreme Makeover Home Edition. That at, the, at the end of a crazy week, there's this big reveal, right? And the family's like crying, and they're all overwhelmed because uh, they see this amazing, beautiful, personalized dream house. I think Romans 6 to 8 is like the big reveal. <laughs> hey, look. Look at the features. Look at the design. Look at the upgrade. Look at the expansion. Look, look, look. Don't even think about the old house. That old house is gone. This is your new house. You live here. This is your reality. See it. Believe it. Live like it's true. So, what are we to do? What are we to do? Those were a lot of pieces. Let me see if I can put some handles. Number one, we are to live according to the Spirit. Paul has been describing to us what the Spirit does for us. The Spirit produces law-fulfilling righteousness. The Spirit is focusing your mind on the things of the Spirit. The Spirit is orienting your soul toward God, helping you taste and see the Lord is good. The Spirit is giving you life making you more and more alive, culminating in your glorious resurrection. The Spirit is praying God's will for you, that you would be conformed to the image of Christ. The Spirit is assuring you that you are His children, that you are beloved, that you are heirs of an inheritance. That is what the Spirit is doing in you. So, Paul says, so keep in step with the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. Live according to the Spirit. The Spirit's doing all of this. 
So go with him. Walk with him. Live as he is producing that in you. Being led by the Spirit is not so much about, oh, the Spirit's prompting me to give specific guidance, at least not in this passage. It's more about being led by the Spirit is he is doing all this work and we're just going to follow him. We are aligning ourselves with him. Don't just sit there. Don't go in the other direction. No, walk in step with the Spirit. Live according to the Spirit. Some of you might recognize the indicative imperative structure here. Paul is saying, you have the Spirit. This is what the Spirit does for you. Statement, indicative, imperative, live like it's true. Live with the Spirit as He is and works in you. The next two applications flesh this out just a little bit more. Number two, what are we to do? We're to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. Living in the Spirit means we no longer live in the flesh. But that's not going to happen without a fight. There is an acknowledgement here of this inner battle. We are to recognize the enemy. We are to fight the enemy. Paul's words, we are to kill it. We are to put it to death. Take no captive. Kill the enemy. The old word for this was mortification. We are to mortify the flesh. To use the ideas from last week, we, ha- we still have indwelling sin, and we are to fight it. Don't take sin lightly. Don't trivialize it. Don't defend it. Don't excuse it. We fight it. But in Romans 8, we see an important distinction. That we fight the flesh, not with our own strength. We fight the flesh by the Spirit. We, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh. So, what does that mean? What does that look like? Let me give just a couple examples to help us understand. Let's just say our flesh loves material comforts and pleasures. It's not wrong to enjoy material comforts and pleasures. These are God's good gifts. We enjoy them. But let's just say it has clearly gone too far. It has become our focus, our obsession. We are always thinking about what we want to buy, what great experience we want to have, what restaurant we want to go to. We're just always thinking about this. What are we to do? We're to repent. We are to put that to death. Fight it. How? By the Spirit. By the Spirit. Well, the Spirit reveals to us something better. We said the Spirit awakens our taste buds to see the Lord is good. We taste and see His goodness, His love, His beauty, His faithfulness. And the more we see that, the more we taste that, the more we want to pursue God instead of our material comforts and pleasures. 
We can say no to that because we can chase after something that tastes better. We are to, by the Spirit, see and savor the sweet beauty of Jesus. That all this other stuff just doesn't seem so grand. Another example. Let's say in the flesh, you are prone to worrying. You worry a lot. There's always something to worry about. There's always dangers. And Lord knows during the pandemic, there's been (laughs) many things to worry about. So many dangers. And if you're a parent, oh my goodness, the kids. You're always worrying about the kids. There's a hundred things to worry about the kids. But Jesus says, don't worry. Don't be anxious. What are we to do? We are to repent of how we worry, of how we are anxious. We are to put that to death by the Spirit. How so? We said the spirit of adoption causes us to cry out, Abba, Father, persuading us, Daddy loves us. We can call on him for help. And that is now our nature, to help us stop worrying and instead to cry out, Daddy, help me. (laughs) Daddy, help me. That we bring our petitions to him and be anxious no more. By the Spirit, we stop our worrying. If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. See, this is life. This is what living in the Spirit, living in the kingdom can look like. One last application. We embrace our adoption. Man, the doctrine of adoption is more than worth a sermon in and of itself. J.I. Packer calls it the highest privilege of the gospel. He says, the first point about adoption is that it is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Higher even than justification as wonderful as justification is. Adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. Justification is a forensic idea conceived in terms of law, viewing God as judge. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love, viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as children and heirs, closeness, affection, and generosity are the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater, says J.I. Packer. It is so incredibly sweet and so critically vital that we experience Experience the closeness, affection, and generosity of our Abba Father. We must, we have to know, experience, taste, live in this love because this is what frees us. This is what transforms us. This is what life in the kingdom is about. It's life with our beloved Father. And the Spirit helps us 
The ministry of the Spirit is to make that real for us. It's not something we can do on our own. Martin Lloyd-Jones imagines this scene. Picture a man walking along a road with his little boy, holding hands, father and son, son and father. The little boy knows that the man is his father and that the father loves him. But suddenly, the father stops, picks up the boy, lifts him into his arms, embraces him, kisses him. The boy is no more a son when he is being embraced than he was before. The father's action has not changed the status of the boy, but oh, the difference of the enjoyment. Right? There is a difference between knowing the st- our status and experiencing it. That's what the Spirit does. He stops. He picks you up into his arms. He embraces you, and he kisses you. Do you feel that? Do you experience that? I just want to give one little practical tip to parents. Didn't even realize today was family day. Though parenting can be hard, kids, one day, maybe you'll understand. Uh, Though it can be hard, Do we not, as parents, all have those moments when our hearts just swell up with affection, like almost moving us to tears? Maybe you're holding or nursing your little baby. Or maybe when they need us, like everything in you just wants to go and take care of them. You'll drop anything and everything. Or maybe... They accomplish something, and oh my goodness, you're just so happy for them, so proud of them, like you could not have more joy. Or maybe it's just a simple moment of play, or laughter, or connection, and there's just something inside you just wants to just, 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 just go and hug them. Just hug them. Well, in those moments, I invite you to pause. And see if you could sense the spirit in you saying, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's what your Abba Father feels toward you. That's his heart. He's a better daddy, a better mommy than you will ever be. In fact, what you have is only a shadow of the transcendent, incomprehensible love that he has toward you. So let me end with this. Friends, Daddy loves you. Daddy loves you. Daddy loves you so, so much. May the Spirit reveal and assure you of just how true that is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are truths that our feeble minds struggle to understand. Indeed, we can't. And yet you have given us your spirit to reveal 
to set our minds, to set our hearts, to set our lives, to enjoy the great, full, abundant life in the embrace of our good, heavenly daddy. That is life in the spirit. Lord, we want to walk with the spirit. We want to keep, that's where we want to go, Lord. So even now, Lord, we seek you. We invite you. Have your way. Have your way here in us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.